Good evening. Good to see everybody again tonight. If you will, go ahead and turn, open to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9. We've been working our way through various passages in the book of Hebrews. The topic for this series is Jesus Changes Everything. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting the way things providentially play out. Last week I, I changed entirely what I was going to be speaking about um, based on the things that were going on that night. And then tonight, uh, doing communion with doing what I was going to do last week, this week. So, uh, and it, it all works together because what we're going to be touching on in Hebrews 9 has a lot to do with what we're remembering as we come to the Lord's table and uh, remember everything that He's done for us. So, chapter 9 of Hebrews, several things going on here. And let me just, let me, if I could, very briefly, give an overview of some of the main points that we've made so far as we're going through this book. One of the, one of the big um, issues that we've been looking at is how the, the book of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, has brought about an entire shift in the way God deals with His people, a massive shift. And the shift that's taken place has given us a better and more perfect high priest. It's given us better and perfect sacrifices. It's given us a better covenant, the new covenant, which of course we'll talk about in the context of the Lord's Supper tonight. And that new covenant has given us better, more perfect promises. And we're, we're going to be kind of talking about the new covenant a little bit tonight, but we're going to be talking more specifically about the uh, better promises that the covenant, this new covenant is enacted on. So Hebrews chapter 9, if you look there in verse 1, and uh, if, if you just look back one verse at the very end of, of chapter 8, I'm going to talk about this more in detail next week. But there... Um, you have one of the longest quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament there in chapter 8. It's a quote from the uh, New Covenant as it's given in Jeremiah. And uh, the writer quotes a, a fairly extensive section of it. And then at the very end of chapter 8, he says, Now by saying a new covenant, and that's what he's been developing, that, that Jesus has, has brought about the ratification and the installation of this new covenant, uh, he goes on to say this, He, God, has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. So the argument he's about to make in chapter 9 and 10 and 11 is that the old Mosaic law um, is, has been done away with. It's, it's been uh, brought to an end by what Jesus has accomplished. And it's been replaced by this new covenant enacted on better promises. And so he starts to develop what those are in chapter 9. Uh, and I'm not going to read all of this. You can see, uh, if you read back through this, the first five verses, he is simply uh, rehearsing what was going on in the tabernacle, later the temple, as the high priest would go in and offer sacrifices the way that was set up. It, it, we talked about this earlier, if you remember, both the tabernacle and the temple were separated into, into two uh, spaces. The outermost space was called the holy place, and you remember the priesthood would go in there day by day, uh, applying blood to the curtain, the veil that separated it from the most holy place. Uh, but in that holy place, 
place, there was the great menorah and the uh, bread and some tables and an altar of incense there. And the priests would go in there daily, worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices, burning incense and different things. But um, the writer picks up in verse 6 with this. He uh, reminds us of a really, really important um, reality having to do with that old tabernacle and that old temple. He says, verse 6, Now with these things set up this way, that is with, with, the, um, with the, the two parts of the tabernacle and everything that was in those things. He says, With all these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, that is the holy place. Verse 7, now look at this. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been fully disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, if you go back to what we talked about the second week, uh, he is about to make the point, we've already covered this, that when Jesus offers his sacrifice, he didn't go into an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. Uh, He was killed as as the sacrifice here on earth on the cross but he actually applies his blood in the heavenly temple you remember us talking about this in chapter 10 so the heavenly temple which is the true temple both the tabernacle and letters Solomon's temple and Herod's temple those are simply based on the copy of the, there were there were copies based on the pattern of the heavenly temple so when Jesus offered his blood as a sacrifice, he went in and applied his blood to that heavenly temple. Uh, And as we saw when we looked at that, something incredible happened. Jesus' blood didn't simply cover over sins the way the animal sacrifices had done under the old law, under the old way, under the laws given at Mount Sinai. His blood actually, you remember this? It removed the sins. It took sin away nullified it. Uh, The the writer of uh, Psalm 103 uh, stated this very powerfully before the new covenant was actually enacted. Probably some of you have memorized part of that psalm. Very powerful. But do you remember early on he says, as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Right? The psalms are prophetic in the sense of Oftentimes, David is given insight into what the Lord is going to do on out in the future before he's actually done it. And so here the psalmist is able to to foresee and understand that, that God has to deal with sin, not simply by covering over it, but it needs to be removed from us. It needs to be taken away from us. And if I could just say, uh, sum all that up with one statement, I would say that what Jesus does there is, is an objective reality. It's objective in the sense that Jesus' cleansing has removed sin as an issue in our relationship with God. He's done it by His one sacrifice, one time, for all sin, for all time. And so you and I have objectively been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. So that there's no barrier between us and God anymore. But there's also something else that Jesus' blood does. And this is, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. Uh, read along with me. He says, Now all this was simply a symbol for the present time, during which the gifts and sacrifices were offered. There he's talking about the animal sacrifices, the blood of the animals and so forth. Uh, 
These cannot perfect the, uh, perfect the worshiper's conscience. In other words, the, the blood of animals, the blood of goats and bulls cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Verse 10, he says, these are simply physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until a time of restoration. In other words, those things were only temporary and they were looking to something else. And that something else comes in verse 11. Now read these next verses with me very, very carefully. The writer says something that's absolutely profound here. And I hope you know this. If, you, if you've never seen this before, I hope it'll sink into your mind tonight. So verse 11, he says this, But the Messiah has appeared, a high priest of the good things that have come, into the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And that's, that's what we were talking about. He didn't go into the physical tabernacle here on earth or the physical temple. Uh, Herod's temple that was in existence when he was crucified. Instead, he goes into the greater, more perfect tabernacle. That is the one that's in the heavens, as he's going to argue in verse 10, I mean, uh, chapter 10. And look at what he says, verse 12. He entered the holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So Jesus goes into the more perfect tabernacle, that is, the heavenly temple. And as he applies his blood, it's not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. And notice what it secures for us. It obtains an eternal redemption. That is forever, ever redemption. That is a redemption that lasts forever and nothing else needs to be done for it. It's perfect. You and I have been perfectly redeemed through the blood of Jesus. We've been bought for Him by His blood. We belong to Him. We belong to Father God. That's the basic idea of redemption. And and now, that's in effect for all eternity. Now, read on. This is the main point we want to get to. Verse 13. By the way, we could spend just... Go back and reread this verse. That alone is absolutely significant. Verse 13, he says, Now if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, listen to this, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me read that one more time. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our or your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Now, just earlier we read that the problem with the law, the problem with the Mosaic law, is that it could never perfect worshipers in terms of their conscience. It can't take care of the sin problem once and for all as a done deal. It's finished. Nothing else we need to do about that. And why? Because they had to go in and offer sacrifices daily. Yearly, day after day, day after day after day after day after day. Think about all the blood of animals that was shed from Moses to Jesus. One and a half thousand years of blood that's been spilled. And the constant repetition of it, what does it tell us? The issue of sin has not been dealt with. 
It's ongoing, right? Jesus comes and he, and he secures an eternal redemption. So as we saw earlier, there's no more sacrifice that's given for sin. Jesus' blood is the last completely um, perfect sacrifice that was given that not only bring, brings a cleansing in the heavenly realm and opens that true temple up to all of God's people, but look at what it does in this verse. It cleanses our consciences from dead works. Cleanses our consciences from dead works so that we might serve the living God. Now this is so important. And and, and it's very important in the context of Hebrews because as I said earlier, I think this letter is written to Jewish Christians who now as they're following Jesus, they're being taught, you don't have to go to the temple anymore. All those things we used to do, Jesus has brought an end to all those things. But think about it. If you're brought up with the mindset, if I sin, I need to offer a sacrifice. I need to go make a grain offering. I need to go do a thank offering. I need to go do these things. And then all of a sudden, one day, nope, you don't have to do that anymore. It's a big shift. Right? And so they're struggling with, really, is Jesus really enough? And the writer is making this argument, yeah, he's really enough, and he's more than you can ever imagine. Because there's just not an objective cleansing of sin, there's also this subjective cleansing of sin. Jesus' blood is applied to us so that our consciences can be cleansed, so that we ourselves can really believe there's nothing else that needs to be done with my sin issue before the living God. It's been removed. It's been removed by the blood of Jesus. But now the blood of Jesus also cleanses my conscience so that I don't have to bring it up anymore. I don't have to worry about it anymore. So that I can serve, so that you, we, can serve the living God. Uh, Something I say in classes over and over and over again, you cannot serve God fully with a guilty conscience. And, and y'all know what we mean by conscience. Conscience is that interior part of us that, that tells us what's right and what's wrong, right? And your conscience is also that part of you that speaks intuitively when you know, right? Uh, you know you ought not be doing that, but you go ahead and do it anyway, or, right? Or you're not doing something that tells you, ah, I really should do that. It's that, you know, that voice. It's the voice that I tell my daughters, do not ignore it. I don't care what the modern teachers tell you to do. If something happens within you and says, this is not good, or something's not right, you get out of there. Because you, your, your body's picking up on stuff that your brain might not be fully aware of. So listen to it. And what happens with the conscience so many times is, before we realize that Jesus has cleansed it, 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 it constantly makes us guilty before the Lord God. Before the Lord God. And I'm going to tell you, I deal with this so much throughout the year. People who come to me and they're still burdened by a guilty conscience. What, Stacy? what else do I need to do? I just don't feel like I'm right with God. I don't feel like there's something else I need to do. Something just doesn't feel right. I mean, I know Jesus died for my sins and all, but every day I get up and I'm depressed because I think about how sinful I am and everything that I'm doing. And I look at him and I say, listen, I'm going to tell you what your problem is, but you're not going to like it. And you're not going to like me for telling you what it is. And they'll be like, okay, let's go. I said, well, can I tell you? Yes. And then I'll tell them, your problem is you haven't really trusted Jesus. Because if you really trusted Jesus, you would believe what he said about your sins. That he's removed them 
But He's also cleansed your conscience to the effect that you don't have to be guilty anymore. Anything that needs to be done with that, you're going to let Jesus take care of it. Now, clearly, that's not a license for us to go out and sin. And, oh boy, Jesus is taking care of everything. And in fact, I would even argue this. When you really realize that, it diminishes sin's power over us. When we realize that it no longer has to have a hold on us in any way whatsoever. Either through guilt or through shame or whatever else, Jesus' blood has cleansed us from those things. And let me tell you why this is so, I think this is so powerful. You go back and you read the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, In the application of the blood, there's only one time, as far as I can tell, that the blood was ever applied to the people of Israel. And that was when Moses first ratified the covenant at Mount Sinai on him, when he he read the initial commandments that the Lord had given to him. And you remember, he took hyssop and water and blood and sprinkled it on the people and sprinkled it on the book of the law, if you remember that. It's the only time the blood was ever applied. Any other sacrifice that was made, the blood was always applied to the places in the tabernacle itself where God had told them, this is where you'll place the blood, on the horns of the altar, on the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Jesus' blood, as we've seen, it was applied in heaven, but it's also been applied to us, cleansing us in the very depths of who we are. Cleansing us to the fact so that we don't have to have a guilty conscience before the Lord God. He's cleansed us for what purpose? Listen, cleansing our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God. Jesus has taken away, removed any barrier that we have between ourselves and the Lord God, and He's cleansed us in such a way that that we can come powerfully into the Lord's presence. Turn over uh, just one one uh, chapter with me to uh, chapter ten, and and I just I just want to read something very short, and and I hope this will will click together here. Hebrews ten verse nineteen, a very well known admonition in this uh, letter in this book. Hebrews ten nineteen, this is this is his um, this is his exhortation. After again, he makes all the points that we've made up to this point. Jesus is a greater priest; he's a greater sacrifice. We've got a better covenant with better promises. And look at what he says in verse nineteen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. That he is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Whenever any priest would enter into the presence of God, uh, whether it was a, on a daily basis, but especially the high priest who went in one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement to offer sin, the, his sacrifices uh, for himself, the sins that he had committed, but also for the sins of the people, he had to do it with fear and trepidation. Because if you've read the stories, you know if he does something wrong, the Lord could kill him where he stood in there. If, if he in any way might possibly have defiled the holiness of the Lord. Now, based on what Jesus has done, how do we enter into the Lord's presence? Boldly. <coughs> Without fear, 
Why? Because Jesus has cleared the way for us in every way that it needs to be, needs to be done for us. And tonight, as we celebrate the communion together, as we celebrate the Lord's table together, you know that when he first instituted this, he made the specific point that this cup we're going to take is his blood. And what was it of? The new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he gave the cup that represents his blood. And he says, do this as often as you do it to remember me. And that's what we're remembering. The blood of Jesus that is not only cleansed us objectively before God, but cleansed us subjectively before God so that we can enter into God's presence boldly, without fear, so that we can find help whenever we need it. And so tonight, as we turn to the table, I hope you'll take that to heart. And I hope you'll know that this way has been offered to us. And everybody's invited to this table. And, and let, me, let me just say this. Uh, the Lord's table... Uh, is I, Now, this is my view, so, so take it with a grain of salt. But the Lord opens this table up to anybody who's willing to come before it. As long as you realize you're a sinner and you're in the need of His grace. And let me just suggest something to you. Everybody that sat at that first table <laughs> when Jesus first did this, they were all sinners, and most of them were as yet unbelievers. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Peter was going to betray Jesus. In fact, all of the disciples were going to run away and leave him before the whole thing was over with. And yet, what does Jesus do? He offers them this table so that when they finally understand what's going on, this will be a remembrance of everything that he's given and sacrificed for us to draw us near to God. So that there's nothing you and I have to do to win acceptance before God, but Jesus has done it for us. And we celebrate that in the table as we come to it tonight. Let me give thanks for these things. Father, we thank you as we... Turn to celebrate what you provided for us in the table. And we, I pray for everybody here tonight that we can, in faith and feel full assurance, know that Jesus has provided a perfect sacrifice for us that not only cleanses objectively from the guilt of our sin, but it also cleanses us subjectively so that our, our conscience can be free of the things that we have done that, that would in uh, some way keep us from you. Jesus has opened that door to us. And Lord, it encourages us and it, and it calls us uh, to be people who pursue you in truth and love, knowing that these things are not given to us lightly, but instead it costs Jesus his life and his blood to accomplish these things. So we want to enter into this time worshipfully and reverently, knowing that we have not been redeemed by the blood of animals, but by the blood of your one and only precious Son, who gave his life so that we might live in him. And we give you all praise and thanks for these things. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.